The Sour Hour is meant for the serious brewer. The Sour Hour may contain some seriously funkified content. The Sour Hour is not for the faint of heart. So exercise some damn discretion, would you please? Sheesh. And now, here's the Sour Hour with Jay Goodwin. All right, it's that time again. Back on the Sour Hour on the Brewing Network. I'm your host, Jay. Here in the Brewing Network studios in downtown Concord. Here with Scott. Hey, Scott. What up, brother? Here with Bitho. And our guest for the afternoon, evening almost, Trevor Rogers from DeGard Brewing in Tillamook, Oregon. Thanks again for having me. Of course. Happy to have you. Your presence and your beers. Having a great time tasting through these, as always. You know it's good when we're having, like, show-type conversations off-air. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. Wanting to know about the beers. Just can't even wait. For sure. We've got another bottle popped open. But before we get to that, just want to do some quick housekeeping up the top. Uh, give us some feedback. Join us in the chat. Email us, scott at thebrewingnetwork.com, jay at thebrewingnetwork.com. Watch us, thebrewingnetwork.com slash TV. Listen live on the Brewing Network app. Just search BN Mobile in places. Subscribe and leave feedback. Really subscribe and leave feedback because... goes a long way. That's how we make our monies. Monies plural? Monies. Eve, are you aware of this? There's more than one monies? No. Mm. No. There's not even one money. (laughs) Wrong. Yeah, we really need you to subscribe. And uh, here's what I think you should do. Subscribe and then press play on the latest episode and then just let it go. Yeah. Just turn on mute while you're at work (laughs) and just play through all the episodes and we get... We get the clicks or That's whatever. Right. Yeah, the click residge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So do that, and it'll, that'll help us out. You know, just do it like three or four times a day. That'd be great. I'm, I'm sold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get this stuff. Well, that's it. Well, I've, I, you know, we never paid off uh, the uh, more information. I, yeah, yeah. Do we have an uh, a uh, an Ivy factoid? And now, more information with me, Beverly Moore. We don't. You can't just ask me a question and then play <laughs> that over top of me. We do. Yeah, if you heard the, oh, le- you the, the first show with uh, with Trevor, we did. I, I posed a very stupid question about ivy growing on buildings on Ivy Street, where the guard is located. Question. It was very stupid. And it has nothing to do with anything that anybody cares about except for me because I'm a climbing vine guy. The more You're information, a climbing vine guy. That's right. Yeah, I like climbing vines. Okay. And Sorry, Sam called. That's a, do you, is that a Christmas That's tune? Harry Potter. Oh, Harry oh, no, Potter. That's a trap beat Harry Potter mix. But also, that could go two ways. You like climbing vines, like literally climbing up vines, or you like vines that climb up things? Interesting. 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 Hmm. I like vines that climb. They they climb. I've, okay never, I've, I've never climbed a vine. You know, my friend Jack hiked a beanstalk once, and that didn't end well. And I'm the dad oh my joke gosh. guy. Stop it. <laughs> I'm cringing. What's up with Ivy? Um, so I found this information at www.bobvila.com. <laughs> so, you know, it's reliable. Um, and basically what you need to do is I'm going to summarize this whole page, but you need to cut your Ivy down. You need to find some sort of a herbicide that has words in it that I can't say. Mm-hmm. Spray it all over where you just pulled, like you need to like try to pull it out of the ground, spray the ground. Mm-hmm. And then you just go back every week and see if it's growing back and <laughs> just keep redoing it. This is how to eradicate However, Ivy. if you don't want to use herbicide, mm-hmm. you can use vinegar. Mm. They're, they're sure that the fire method that we talked about is not it the most effective? It doesn't kill the roots. Mm. And you're sure that that qualifies as a fun fact? No, it's just a fact. <laughs> Jay did ask for a fun fact. Yeah, it if it involved fire, fire it would be a fun fact, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well... Let's play the drop again. Oh, yeah. Good luck uh, if you're going to try to eradicate Ivy. And this has been... More information with me, Beverly Moore. Okay, moving on. Thanks, Beeve. Thank you. She's calling back into an interview, I think. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Tell Sam to call into the show. Hi, I'm looking for a job that pays me. No, I will not do that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, we have a new beer open. Oh, yeah, we do. This is The Rosé. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and... The always implies for us um, the base recipe that most closely is inspired by Lambic traditions. Oh, uh, I didn't so, know that. Yeah. Fun fact. Yeah, That's fun a fun fact. fact. 
I had fun we listening should, to it. We should probably put that on like our website or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we we don't, for the record. I'm not just giving you shit. Um, yeah, so that uh, as we talked about earlier in the show, the 58% uh, pale malted barley, uh, four-year Cascade Willamette, uh, 42% approximately unmalted wheat. This one, though, was taken at I think about 18 uh, months average age in wood. Um, after leaving the cool ship that was then transferred to secondary oak casks. Uh, we do all of our fruit refermentations in 10 hectoliter upright oak tanks. Um, we prefer oak for that versus stainless. Uh, refermented with the grapes before being transferred to tertiary, third round of oak tanks, uh, for further maturation, uh, just to make it not quite so effusively like fruity, which mm-hmm. we find for grape refermentations uh, immediately after coming off the fruit. To target more of a rosé-type character, we didn't give the same length of maturation in that third round of oak casks that we do for our other great beers, um, trying to encourage more of that fruit-forward character. What is the, the 10 hectoliter oak tank? Is that just like a it's an upright kind of standard-looking fooder, or is there some settling process of all that fruit so you don't transfer it to the next kind of oak punch-in? Yeah, um, so the 10 hectoliter tanks we use, are they're designed to be one-ton grape fermenters. So it's an upright um, oak tank of about, I think, like 4 foot 12 inches tall mm-hmm. with a full drain valve and a full stainless steel top on it. We use them for fruit fermentations, one, because that's what they're designed for, right? But also because it's very easy to get fruit in and get fruit out, mm-hmm. again, because that's what they're designed for. Uh, so any time we have a fruit fermentation, dry hopping, any extra ingredient we add to our beer, we do it in those tanks. Uh, after transferring from the initial oak vessel that they were fermented and matured in. Uh, so it's always with mature beer. And then for our wine grape beers, they always see a third round of oak conditioning where we'll take it, you know, so it went from barrel or oak tank to that 10 hectoliter upright oak tank with the fruit. And then for the wine grapes, it goes back to a third round of oak, usually a, a 10 hectoliter horizontal oak cask. Uh, for further maturation to uh, encourage more of a venous nature, wine-like nature uh, that those grapes can provide versus like a Welch's grape juice type character. Mm -hmm. Is that typical of a lot of your beers, that many transfers? So cool ship to oak, to oak tank, back to either a different type of oak tank and then into package? Thankfully, no. Uh, God, it certainly is not uh, efficient from a labor and uh, cleaning standpoint. I feel that the wine grape beers particularly benefit from that third round transfer and further maturation in oak after the uh, fruit refermentation. And I, I haven't seen the same thing from other fruit types that we have fermented with. Um, we've done trials before, like aging on the fruit longer, aging in another round of oak after that fruit refermentation. And what you ultimately end up with is um, less vibrancy um, mm. for an appreciation of a wine grape contribution. Um, when I think Mouvedre, like this particular beer has, or you know Zinfandel or something like that, there there's an amount of oxidation and oak barrel aging in the process of making those. And so our impression of what that should taste like is going to be quite different. Um, and I think that that further aging coaxes out more complexity from wine grapes than it does for other types of fruit, perhaps. Yeah, what do you think that is? Um, you know, I know you have this background in wine, and you know, wine grapes just also have this very long tradition in fermentation. Not that other fruits do not. What do you think, in your opinion, makes the wine grape special? Well, it makes wine. That's um, good. That's pretty good. <laughs> Moving along, <laughs> you know, honestly, I think there's just a, a different polyphenolic character. Wine grapes, obviously, were capable of making a fermented beverage that was delicious or people wouldn't have cultivated them for millennia. Mm-hmm. And that's wine, by the way. They make wine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're clear on that. Yeah. Though, right? <laughs> Move it. More information. I think there's What's up a- with wine? <laughs> so it's this fermented beverage, uh, oftentimes red, although sometimes it's like, you know, uh, kind of fairly clear to, you know, golden colored like this. Anyway, hey. <laughs> nice visual Crash joke on a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a winemaker could answer this better than I could, obviously. Um, but there are preservative characteristics to wine, inclusive of tannin and such, um, that made it possible to make fermented beverages with it that would keep. And I think over millennia of coaxing 
hybridizing, basically making ideal cultivars of wine, you end up with something that expresses its complexity best when it is kept, whether that be in oak or oftentimes in bottle. And we used to package our wine grape beers just as with our other fruit beers immediately after the fruit refermentation. And what we found, though, progressively is that we preferred them at, you know, two years in bottle or three years in bottle. What we found through trial was that we could coax a similar character and maturity out with an extra year in oak and then a year in bottle afterwards. And it basically matured quicker and we got more complexity and character that we liked a bit better. Um, the timeline might not have changed drastically, but the character hit that sweet spot sooner, slightly, um, and, and was ultimately slightly better. Yeah, I mean this beer's good. Oh yeah, and it's there's um, so much unique character. It's the great bridal, as we were talking about off the air. That, yeah. that that might be that might be doing it, lending a particularly earthy. I had picked it up originally as maybe like a light roast coffee flavor, mm-hmm. which you wouldn't expect re- really from a grape. Yeah, well, I think you know after you mentioned it. It's one of those uh, suggestive things. Now I have a name to put to some of the characteristics I get from this beer. And I'll say again that this is an exception to most of our great beers. I think uh, after the, it's probably on the label when we packaged it, but after the great fermentation, this only spent a few months in oak, I think, um, further conditioning before it was uh, ultimately packaged off. Whereas the vast majority of our wine grape beers from last year's harvest are still in oak barrels. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Have you tried any uh, or thought about trying any other uh, vessels other than oak? You know, we had um, Andrew Schwartz in here from Modern Times. He had been experimenting with amphora mm-hmm. recently, clay vessels. You thought about doing stuff other than oak? Absolutely. I, I'm pretty sure my wife is listening right now, so we're never going to do Again, that. Again, he just looked at the sky. We're and... never going to do that. No. <laughs> it's something you, you, I, never. No, it's something I would love to experiment with. I mean... I think all of us are in this industry because we're passionate about beer, right? And a huge part of that is wanting to try new things, to experiment. Uh, there is certainly a resurgence of some of the old traditions. They never went away entirely like amphora, uh, fermented or aged uh, wine. I think trying to apply that to some beer is a very cool uh, notion. It certainly, it's something that has caught on in the wine industry, as well as uh, being experimented with by a lot of European beer producers, uh, notably, obviously, one of our one of our larger inspirations, inspirations Cantillon, um, has been working with it. Yeah, very exciting, and I think that's a new and expensive frontier to investigate. Yeah. In. Well, and therein lies the uh, the. We're never doing this, uh, Lindsay. My we wish. won't do it, Lindsay. Don't worry. They're uh, they're expensive. Uh, we we yeah. actually have one of the premier domestic producers of ceramic vessels for uh, winemaking in Oregon, hmm. um, Beckham Estate. Uh, they have a security system because <laughs> <laughs> you can just carry those things right out. Yeah. <laughs> so I think they focus on ones that probably weigh about a ton each. Yeah. <laughs> So I would love to experiment with it. Right now, we're trying to finish off the last few barrels of remaining capacity we have for wood before we look into the other further projects. Uh, as I mentioned to Jay, we, we have room for uh, 14 more barrels, which are on their way right now and will then be at capacity. That's so. it. And then you're going to sell that beer. Lindsay, <laughs> no, it's it is tough though. I mean, yeah, I know we got to take a break, but it it is a it's that uh that push pull of you know having your own having your own spot. You know, yeah, I want want to try new things, and you want to buy new things, and but like, do you want to take a check for yourself? Like, do we got bills to pay too? You know, so it's always a battle. Oh, for sure. And you know, one of the saddest things is maturing a beer for a couple of years and having to pour it out at the end. It, oh it God, has to happen on and occasion. That oh pain. Yeah, we're ordering lights in the mail and then they break. <laughs> oh yeah, God. Really, Let's get to a break, but I want to thank a couple of sponsors before we go. Oregon Fruit Products, Aseptic Puree is easy to use, convenient to store, no additives nor artificial flavors. Simply great expression on the raw fruit. They love working with brewers to help us innovate. Check them out. Fruitforbrewing.com, Oregon Fruit. They bring fruit to life and other BN shows. Not the session. Bruce Strong, Dr. Hammer, Bruno Style, Heads and Dales, John Renner, and Jason Races. Hop in, Bruce Cole. Bloody Blah, etc. All right. Uh, we have one more beer to get to. Yes. Yeah. By the way, those uh, in the Brewing Network studios, mm-hmm. there's some Degar beers out in the uh, cooler. Ah, uh, yes. 
they're being depleted rapidly. Oh, is that they're, right? Yes. Oh, good. Uh, we, we, I think honestly, since uh, since day one, I, we've carried Degard as a matter of course. That you know, in your in your in the fridge, in the coolers here. That's at the Brewing Network yeah, Studio the, headquarters. That's right. Well, in the, in the converted dorm fridge. We've got. We've always got Degard yeah. beer. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. fun fact: uh, the the uh, little brains behind our operation, my wife Lindsay, ensured that we sent down three of the four beers we're tasting on the show tonight Brilliant. to offer here. So smart. Lindsay, had a girl. Talented, awesome. I wish she was Love here. It. Yeah. <laughs> so do I. She, she, yeah, she figured out how to get everything here except her. Yeah. Miss you. But <laughs> Miss we'll, get, you, we'll get over it during the break. <laughs> we'll be right back. This is the Sour Hour on the Brewing Network. Hey, my brewing brothers and sisters, this is Jamel Zanishev, and I want to tell you about Heretic Evil Twin. You might be familiar with my homebrew recipe, which uses massive late hopping to create a balance between the malty sweet and the hoppy bitter, along with an outrageous malt and hop character. I wanted a beer with the same bold hop and malt character, so we played around with the homebrew recipe until we were able to make a great commercial version, too. We've created a beer rich in malt character, full of caramel, toast, biscuit, and an ever-so-subtle roast note. On top of that, we piled in an insane amount of citra and Columbus hops, at the end of the boil, as well as in dry hopping. This damn-the-cost approach to hopping gives Heretic's Evil Twin a great blast of citrus and tropical fruit that can't be matched by any other hop. The result is a bold, malty, hoppy, but easy-drinking beer. This is our top seller, our flagship beer, and I couldn't be prouder of it. Cheers. To find Heretic Beers near you, click on Find Some at hereticbrewing.com. Brewing on the show tonight. Before we get back into more beer, want to start in on some of our great sponsors: Nishamni Creek Brewing, three-time Philly Beer Scene Magazine Brewer of the Year, two-time JBF Vienna Style Lager Medal winner, Bronze for Smoke Lager Times Two, renovated tasting room with a variety of beer styles from hoppy double IPAs to sessionable poundable lagers. To Oak Eft Saisons, fermented Saisons, <laughs> Sour Beers, free brewery tours on Saturdays, new second <laughs> location. I'm just, I'm hearing Open. the full word in my head, and it's so funny. Yeah. I don't know why. Uh, com. Check them out. You guys might have more insight on this. What does Oak Eft mean? Fermented. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's really fermented, but... I just changed it. It's, be- it's much better <laughs> okay. when you picture it's like this week in unnecessary censorship on Kimmel. Yeah, it's the best because that's really what you, the oak is doing, isn't it? It's just effing that beer good and hard. <laughs> Fermenting. I don't know what you're thinking. You know, it, yeah. <laughs> Ideally, an execution would be gentle, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't always have to eff it hard. Something Sometimes that's not the right thing to no. do. Saison wants to be loved softly with barrel. Exactly. No transition here. Don't discuss it, Bebo. You know, you know, you know what we're talking about. Wineandhop.com, <laughs> locally owned and operated for over 40 years. Most times going to ship within 24 hours. BN listeners get it at flat $8 shipping rate on orders under 25 pounds. Enter BN shipping in the notes field of the shopping cart. The discount's going to be taken off after you check out Madison Residence special offer. Order your homebrew supplies online at wineandhop.com. Pick them up at Working Draft Beer Company, located on Wilson Street, right across from Central Park. They're going to waive the shipping and give you half off your first beer, wineandhop.com. Man, we got the um, the final DeGard beer in our glass. Look at that, that color of this That thing. Purple Creek. Oh, man, no kidding. I was about to sip it, and then you kept talking about effing oak. <laughs> this beer is effing my mouth right now. It's filling. It was effed by oak, too. It was, yeah. Mm -hmm. You can taste it. Tell us about the Purple Creek. The Purple Creek. Yeah. The, because as we talked about before, the base recipe is uh, that spontaneously fermented beer, as with all of our beers. but this Spontaneously effed beer. Yeah. Yeah, got it. (laughs) It's actually intentionally effed. Yeah, so Scott's new thing. (laughs) Why do I love it so much? What is wrong with me? As with all of our uh, the beers at this point, it's a multi-year blend, but the average age on this is about 24 months in oak. This thing is transferred to those secondary 10 hectoliter upright oak tanks uh, that we talked about, 
and sees a re-fermentation with a variety of different fruits. Um, we work with one particular farm in Oregon, um, name not to be disclosed because I don't want anybody stealing their... <laughs> <laughs> For real, like, I am a very uh, upfront person about ingredients, uh, equipment. In this case, it's a small um, mom-and-pop berry farm, and I don't want somebody stealing my damn berries. In Montana. <laughs> so that already narrows it down a lot. Uh, in, in Oregon, um, <laughs> if they were if they were a younger couple and looking to expand their farming operation, then hell yeah, I'd give their name out and encourage their growth. In this case, they're looking to retire soon, which kind of terrifies me. So the berries in this are from them. Uh, it's a fifty fifty mix of black and red raspberries. Uh, the black raspberries were are where the majority of the color from this comes from. Uh, every other fruit ingredient is more vibrantly red and the red raspberries providing some of that along with the black and red raspberries it sees a mix of montmorency and morello tart cherries um, and we typically use those in the blend of like two-thirds montmorency to one-third morello on um, the morello providing a lot of color kind of punchy sour cherry character of the montmorency providing kind of some sexiness like delicate uh, nuance and um, just depth to it and so we blend those two to end up with the Purple Creek. No further oak maturation after that initial fruit refermentation. Uh, so mature beer going into oak on the fruit and then to blending tank once that's winding down. I like this it's a lot. incredible. So if you're going to, uh, you know, let's say you want to seek out, you know, a smaller farm for, uh, you know, some bo- boutique fruit, what do you look for? Quality, first and foremost. We like working with people that are passionate about what they do as much as we are in a similar mindset. And I encourage any other brewer to work with them. Uh, Baird family orchards in Oregon grows some of the best stone fruit, the peaches, nectarines, apricots, etc., uh, as well as uh, sweet variety cherries that you're not going to find something better. They experiment. Uh, Trevor Baird, uh, other Trevor is, he simply is referred to around a brewery. <laughs> Trevor too. Yeah. Uh, he's constantly planting new things, trying new things, grafting new trees in, in pursuit of providing and growing the best fruit that he possibly can. And that speaks very dear to our heart, right? I mean, we're in pursuit of the best beer we can possibly make. So finding a like-minded individual is a beautiful thing. Absolutely. And the, the, I think this is the same uh, farmer who we talked about on the way here yeah. who has the peach flowers. And if you don't want to go into this, we can cut my question out. But if you want to, I think that was a pretty cool story that you told. Yeah. Um, well, first off, don't ask for the flowers from him because those are mine. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. And They're contracted already. So it underlines what I had said just a moment ago that he's in pursuit of doing the best thing that he can uh, for fruit, but he's also interested in what's going to work well for our beer. Uh, so three years ago was the first time he reached out and said he's doing some pruning, uh, cropping some trees off for grafting and had a bunch of peach flowers available uh, because you know, it was after budding. Maybe you have a use for them in brewing. I looked online and like, okay, these have culinary use perhaps, but are supposedly incredibly delicate uh, so we took a gamble on it the same way he was willing to take a gamble on like his time and just running him out to us to see if it made good beer with us. And it turned into one of, I think, the best beers we've done, uh, the, the Blossom, uh, the first batch of that. And since then, we've been trying to work with him and get more each year. Uh, but it turns out fruit farmers aren't really keen on cutting branches and blossoms off of uh, fruit trees because that don't be surprised, decreases the yield of fruit from that tree. What? I know, right? <laughs> How do trees work? <laughs> yeah. So we uh, just just yesterday finished processing in a bunch of uh, peach blossoms for this season, and we're really, really excited about that beer again. And, you know, I hadn't heard of uh, using the flowers from peach trees. What What is the flavor component of that? Yeah, it's kind of a beautiful thing. And when we first... The first year we got them from other Trevor, we made a hot and cold tea with them, uh, trying to figure out what kind of um, extract or character we'd see potentially in a soak. Uh, if I'd had the time, I would have ran and grabbed some vodka and see what alcohol threw into the equation. Man, after my own heart. <laughs> so, <laughs> the, uh, the teas smelled like... Uh, almost almond extract, uh, like amaretto, maraschino. Like there was a, you know, a plethora of Italian words. Like 
but really amaretto was a big one um, so present Alm- yeah but no. maraschino was a, a really uh, strong impression as well like preserved like the shitty bar cherries i like those we we took a gamble and we stuffed all these like after pulling each of those little individual flowers off of uh, all of the branches we stuffed them into the top of one single 500 liter uh marsan wine puncheon that had two-year-old beer in it with the expectation that it might turn out terrible i guess not expectation the knowledge that it could turn out mm-hmm. terribly and we'll see checked on it again a week later and that character had changed whether because of the presence of yeast in the aging process or the presence of alcohol in it and we ended up with something that was you know for lack of a more exact description something almost like watermelon jolly rancher um, which if you've ever had one like you know that flavor right yeah and it played remarkably well with the beer Uh, just completely different than anticipated so we're hoping uh, the last batch of it had less of that watermelon jolly rancher i think uh, and more green apple jolly rancher Definitely a bit more of that. <laughs> that um, taste rainbow. Good, I, know, um, I knew exactly where he was going. Yeah, that, but uh, more of a floral character. Uh, this year, the blossoms, the teas we made before we during processing, bore more similarity to the first round, and so we're expecting more of that that original character out mm-hmm. of it. Um, neither one were were necessarily better or worse. Uh, the first one was just like such a shock when we pulled a barrel sample. You know, pulling a nail out of it, like what the f. Where did this what the from? fermentation? Yeah. <laughs> this is my new favorite. This is, uh, gen- trope. This is like this is not a trope, but it's genuine laughter coming from Scott every time. So good. <laughs> so, no, it, you know it encourages. You want to find people like that that are dedicated to making something in the same way you're dedicated to making beer. Mm-hmm. And so when we find them, we do our best to develop a a really positive relationship on each side of it like do you want to contract with us like we will commit to using as much this amount of fruit if that helps you and so for our berry farm we do that because they need to know that what they have in the ground is going to be sold so we'll tell them like we'll pay you x amount of dollars for this amount of fruit usually going uh, i think above what they would quite a bit above what they'd get on uh, oftentimes the basically commodity market you know, if you have to like bulk sell this off to a larger fruit processor, you're getting paid probably 50% of what we're offering them. But we want to get great fruit. We want to work with them on different varieties and try and get the type of fruit and the ripeness uh, and character that we're looking for. If you're going to work with an or- organic, uh, naturally grown commodity, then then the relationships you have are paramount to making the best beer you can. You can. And how often do you guys try something like that where it's maybe an ingredient you're less experience with or it's more experimental and you're just you, you you do the teas but you just say after a while hey i'm let's let's go for this i think this could be a really interesting beer you know i, I think at this point there we have limited ability without filing for um formula approval or, or getting ingredients uh, approved um, by ttb or fda um there are some other native ingredients that that i would love to work with but we've certainly taken a gamble on a number of other ones. I, I'm pretty sure, again, my wife, Lindsay, who's going to hate me after this podcast, <laughs> remembers not fondly when I told her that I needed uh, you know, X thousands of dollars for the first time we ordered a bunch of Oregon truffles. And we both... Oh, X is the Roman numeral 10, so... <laughs> <laughs> we, we both love truffles, uh, white and black truffles. And I thought that the, the funky, earthy character from them would be really complimentary for some uh, with some well matured beer of ours she thankfully was uh, willing to go along with that and it, it turned out pretty fantastic and since she has been incredibly accommodating with our truffle budget <laughs> that has grown i think every year awesome i would imagine that would be something that would be easy to overdo i mean truffles are so powerful and overwhelming did you treat it gingerly we do have the so with every beer that we add any extra ingredient to, we typically overdo it. Um, so really? like the Purple Creek here, uh, when we referment on the fruit, we hit that with a massive amount of fruit with the anticipation that we're going to want to backblend that. Mm-hmm. Um, some of that's for to get the desired fruit intensity um, or any other ingredient intensity, but also so you can get the balance, whether it be for acid, the character. Like you can take other components then, 
after that fruit fermentation and when you put it into a blending tank prior to packaging, you can try and get that where you want it to be. And I think that's a really useful tool, something that we didn't have necessarily early on, like a plethora of different barrels to pull from. And I think after our third year started using more fruit in the initial fruit refermentation with the anticipation of our ability to backblend to the desired intensity, but also to supplement the character and provide complexity. Uh, so for truffles, we use a lot, lot of truffles. Um, but we do usually backblend that with further mature beer to either soften the truffle character or just, again, to provide acid balance or complexity to it. And I think it's easier to go that direction than to source more truffles. It's kind of like, you know, if you have too many blankets on, yeah. it's easier to take the blankets off and mm-hmm. get cool than... Wait, did I do that Wait, the wrong no, way? I think we, we, we might have got that one reversed. You, you, you F under the blanket or what is it? Wait, where we, easier to get warmer. Yeah, I think that's it. get cooler. Right. That's it. Well, yeah. And in the case of most fruit, and certainly with truffles, you have an incredibly seasonal ingredient. Like, we can't just go back a few weeks later and say... I need another, like, you know, three pounds of white truffles. Mm -hmm. So you can't add more to it. All you can do is pull it back. So better to start heavy and and then dial it back as needed. How do you find the process in your brewery now of controlling acid? I guess just kind of broad spectrum overall, because I'm sure some batches are... Uh, have more acid to contribute. Some have less. I mean, your beers are very well balanced and just that nice kiss of acidity that makes it drinkable and interesting. How do you balance that kind of on an ongoing basis where you're just filling a lot of barrels with these spontaneous batches and you kind of have to predict, hey, maybe we need a little more acid stock or maybe we need a little less? It's multifold. I'll say first that we don't ever target an acid stock. Um, ideally, we want each beer to, each vessel to have a great balance in and of itself, knowing that that's likely to change if you referment it, if you age it on something else, if you blend it. Like this is very much a, a point in time, not a, a destination. I mentioned to you earlier that we've targeted a higher hopping rate. Heck, I think I mentioned it on the last podcast that we're trying to restrain acid. We, we don't see it as a goal. Um, for spontaneous fermentation, acid is a byproduct of how you're making the beer. Depending on where you are, it's going to be an element. We see it as the biggest challenge in beer making to try and restrain that. We try and combat aggressive acidity, uh, one by dumping vessels that are, are, are far too aggressive, um, and then working with different components to bring it into balance you know we want characterful beer but first and foremost we want complex and drinkable beer Mm -hmm. Uh, the goal isn't to make sour beer and in fact like it's a term that uh, i don't use to describe our beer sure um, because that implies um intent and it it certainly isn't one well that's all the time we have on the sour hour (laughs) now i i don't criticize anybody else that uses it and it is an accurate descriptor of our beer. It mm-hmm. has acidity. It is sour. Um, it always will be. But we see that as a challenge to restrain that and keep that in balance with other components. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what we do, too. Um, you know, I think we're focused on – some people get focused on the word sour, and I think it can be a bad word for a lot of sour, wild, mixed culture beer producers where, you know, it's almost like a reductive term that it's sour beer. This is a side topic, but – where I've always come down on this issue is that when we're talking about it kind of colloquially as brewers, it's always referred to as sour beer, or just the vast majority of the time it's referred to as a genre as... That's become the name of the genre. Sour beer. Mm -hmm. And as long as we understand that that runs the gamut of beers that are, you know, maybe aggressively sour or they're kettle sours or they can be lightly nuanced mixed culture beers... And they have a touch of acidity, you know, thing in turns in pH, like high threes pH. It's like, is this a, you know, air quotes, sour beer? Uh, The one we're drinking right now is mm 3.56. Yeah. That's most of our beers are falling in the mid uh, three range. uh, Then at about uh, 40 to 60 IBU. Yeah. Tested. Um, Like realistically, they're, they're not sour, although there is a, there is acidity there. Yeah, and we've got some beers now that are like three eight, three nine, and 
you know, we kind of think to ourselves, is this enough that it's not a Brett beer? And it's just like, you get that just yeah. touch of acidity, which I really like. And, and a lot of your beers have that for sure. But, you know, I think that it really is a, a long discussion and one that, that is happening, I think, um, and needs to continue happening. Like, how do we describe a lot of this? Because what you're doing, what we're doing, and not to you know, uh, denigrate to some lower category, but like somebody that's making a kettle sour, like these are going to have not just different character, but different intent. Mm-hmm. You know, um, to put them all in a, a catch-all category of like sour beer, I think is doing a disservice to each of them, not just any particular one. Um, so we've been trying to make a really dedicated effort towards um, describing our beer uh, as spontaneous, not as a qualitative term, but just to denote the fact that, you know, our pursuit is complexity, Britannomyces expression effectively, mm-hmm. which I think is what most people doing spontaneous beer are targeting. I don't think that makes it better or worse than anything else. That's just what we do and what, what our pursuit is. So it, you may not have noted, but, uh, you know, since you picked me up at the airport, thank you again. <laughs> uh, you know, I haven't, haven't used the, uh, the term sour mm-hmm. beer. Um, it, it's always like, you know, mixed fermentation, uh, wild, spontaneous, uh, because I'm still parsing out how best to work through how each of us describe our sure. beers. Yeah, me too. I'm still running into it a, a lot, too. Even for people that are on the craft beer train at this point, they like craft beer, but they're still like, eh, I don't, I don't like sour beer. But then you ask them follow-up questions that, that we know to ask because we run into this all the time. Oh, do you like a lemon in your water? Do you like yogurt? Do you like kombucha? And uh, invariably, they like all that stuff. So they do. They do like acid. Mm-hmm. They just think they don't for a combination of reasons. Maybe they had something years ago they didn't like. Well, and that falls back to what I said. Like, you know, I think each of us are doing a disservice to each different product type uh, or production method. Uh, Somebody that says they don't like sour beer, that might be because they had, you know, something like Ivy or, you know, broken truck from us. Like, you know, it's just funky, you know, a a Brett bomb. That doesn't mean they don't like sour beer. They just don't like a a pronounced, like, you know, minerally Brett expression. Maybe they don't uh, like aged cheese. Yeah, or somebody that's had, you know, like a kettle soured fruit beer and like I just don't like that. Uh that doesn't mean that there's not room within a very broad category for yeah. their taste. Absolutely. We should take our final break and then do one more segment and then uh you know maybe in the in the last part here we can find out about the brewery itself. I didn't get like a visual tour or anything like we normally do. Okay. That's a shot at me, but that's fine. Come on, Jay, get it together. Well, we, you know, he's never been there actually. Yeah, that's true. I'm sorry, Scott. You know what? what? I dip. Oh, you dip. You dip. I dip. We I dip. dip. It's a commercial or home use water testing kit, which incorporates a revolutionary photometer, which is the first and only on the market with its own app. The I dip can perform over forty different water quality tests for things like. Chloride, calcium harness, pH sulfate, and much more. Podcast listeners should enter code TBN10 at checkout. Save $10 on either the standard or advanced smart brew testing kit. Order now and make this futuristic technology part of your brewing process. Visit them. www.smartbrewkit.com. It's the IDIP. Yeah. It's good. We actually stole the Brewing Networks. And then yeah. Mike, formerly of the Rear Barrel, and this is why I fired him, actually. <laughs> I stole it from you. He stole it from us. Oh, and then Mike. JP is like, where is that? And I was like, Mike, where is that? He's like, I have it at home. Yeah. To be honest, when you said that you stole it from the Brewing Network, I was excited because since I'm coming to visit you, <laughs> that was going to be mine. Well, you can get $10 off. Do you have Mike's address? <laughs> I do. He's got a lot of Van Forest there. If too. nothing else, so I've just... got $10 off. <laughs> he lives on the West End. That's all I know about Mike. West End girls. Uh, break? Yes. All right. We'll be right back for the last of it with Trevor from DeGard. This is the Sour Hour on the Brewing Network. Since the first time the Brewing Network microphones turned on, more beer was behind it. More Beer sponsors the programming on the BN because, like you, they love brewing. And like the Brewing Network, they love sharing their knowledge. MoreBeer.com isn't just a website to place your next equipment or ingredient order. 
morebeer.com also gives you access to free beer information that will make you a better brewer. Go to morebeer.com and click into the Learning Center. You'll find podcasts, technical facts, video tutorials, and more, including access to The Buzz, More Beer's social network of more than 5,000 members. And some of them might even be crazier about beer than you are. Get over to morebeer.com today and take advantage of The Buzz, The Forum, The Learning Center, and make sure you're signed up to receive the newest More Beer catalog. More Beer, bringing you absolutely everything for beer making. Sour Hour. Trevor's hanging in there with us, as is Scott. And is Bebo still here? She's there. Yeah, she's Hi, Bebo. Hey, Bebo. How's it going? It's fine. What are you watching? I'm playing a game. Okay. <laughs> I'm playing a game. I was watching the Santa Clarita Diet, though. Oh, that's a show. Netflix. I was, I was expecting more fun facts on how to eradicate ivy. <laughs> <laughs> nope. The Santa Clarita just diet, facts, not fun. Is yeah. that is that like like keto or is it not like you it's know a it's a new diet Netflix. or it's a show? Okay, I don't know. Yeah, uh, about a woman in Santa Clarita, Clarita who becomes a zombie. Sounds and awesome. People, the diet. I love the specificity. See, see like what they did there. Yeah, <laughs> she stumbles out of the Magic Mountain parking lot and looks for dead flesh. Oh yeah. Yum. I've got a few more questions, Scott. You said off air you have more questions, I do but indeed. I just want to say that our questions and all questions are brought to us by Dr. Lambig and his team at SourBeerBlog.com. Check out all the articles on SourBeerBlog for a great written resource devoted to teaching you how to brew and blend sour beer at home. And now, SourBeerBlog crew is opening up a brewery and taproom in Central Pennsylvania. Check them out: Mellow Mink Brewing at Mellow Mink. Com. Boom. So, yeah, this is uh, this is my question that Dr. Lambig is bringing us. Uh, we've we've done often at the beginning uh, of of interviews had the guests walk us through their their physical space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I mentioned that we have the new facility, not necessarily to increase capacity, although it comes with a very nominal increase on that. So, first and foremost, we have a very humble building. It's old. Was built. As best as we can ascertain, sometime in the early to mid-1930s, the county records were lost in a fire. <laughs> so that. That's always... what It's so funny. Up until classic. like a generation ago, everything was burned in a fire. There's no documentation because it was burned in a fire. Yeah, so we're uh, reliant upon the oldest photographs we can find and, you know, how accurate their dating is, is, you know, somewhat problematic even. Um, in any case, uh, it's a two-story structure that we had to strip down to pretty much just the walls. Um, it needed a new um, slab poured for it, and we had to build an addition off of for our tap room as well as an additional uh, small addition for larger oak tanks. We have two 60-barrel horizontal tanks, a 50-barrel upright, and then some of those uh, 10 hectoliter fruit tanks uh, we stack too high, so it requires some clearance. What had been in there previously? Most recently, and very unromantically, was in Napa Auto Parts. Historically, it's, for most of its lifespan, been like a grange feed store, um, more agricultural uh, commodity type of brokerage, which is in line with what our county is. I mean, we're, we're in dairy and farm country um, in, in Tillamook County. We did manage to keep the original wood ceiling and the second-story wood trusses, um, mostly not because they were structurally sound. We actually paid extra to, to hoist them and, and uh, reinforce them, but because we didn't want to start with a sterile environment. Uh, old wood is great at harboring Britannomyces uh, specifically, and so we wanted to keep some of that old wood instead of starting with a very clean, fresh, fairly sterile uh, brewery. I mean, we still have to follow the same regulations that any other brewery does. Uh, your facility has to be um, easily cleanable, um, has to, you know, you can't have mold. They, so the vast majority of our brewery is 
by its walls and structure, not easily distinguishable from any other brewery. Um, where it diverts is the amount of oak in there. And in the second story uh, around barrel maturation, we have a lot of that old wood still uh, exposed. But if you walk into our brewery, uh, we have about a 52 by 104 foot floor plan. We have a reasonably traditional brew house in there. And then we have our blending tanks, bottling line, and then a lot of our 1,000 liter and 2,000 liter oak casks uh, stacked in that first story. If you go up the stairs, and then we have a, uh, I think at this point, 214 500 liter puncheons um, pyramid stacked uh, underneath that that old ceiling, uh, those old trusses, and then our cool ship located uh, on the north end of the building, uh, which is kind of where the magic happens for the type of beer that we're making. And we did make a change that I think is, is somewhat notable from our old location in that rather than having a roll-up door or louvered windows or something as is uh, common for spontaneous inoculation and fermentation, we put ducting from the south end of the building in, um, basically make up air, and then to the east of the cool ship, uh, flowing over the top of it, we put a high-capacity variable-speed fan. One of the variables we found in what's already an incredibly variable process in spontaneous fermentation is the rate of inoculation from outside air. Uh, If you have a really windy day blowing from the east, if we had a door on the east, you're going to have a lot of outside yeast and bacteria coming in. If the wind's blowing from the west or it's a very, you know, like placid uh, uh, weather pattern, you might have very little to none. And you are introducing another variable in this. So in this case, we now can control each batch having a known rate of outside air flowing over the surface of the cool ship, um, removing one of the variables from that, again, already incredibly variable process. Uh, It's not really as beautiful as having stained glass louvered windows, like romanticizing this, but realistically, like this style of production was out of necessity. Um, That's the tools that were given. It, It was utilitarian and we're always looking to make the best beer that we can with the means we have available to us. We designed our brewery rather than being a showcase and having those windows, uh, for example, to make the best beer we can, even if it isn't necessarily the most aesthetically pleasing. Although I'm told that it's quite sexy uh, because there's barrels everywhere and such. Yeah, sounds great. So one uh, sort of off-topic thing that I was thinking about earlier is you age your beer in these kind of larger format barrels for such a long time. What's the evaporation and topping policy that you guys have? That's changed over time. We're in a pretty humid environment, so we don't see the same rate of evaporative loss that somebody in you know, the southeast or southern California might see, or potentially even in the Bay Area. I don't know what the humidity is here. Um, it feels fairly humid. We typically will go through ferment beer, and then the last batch or two of the season usually are used to top up the oak vessels from that season. Um, usually some of the early ones from the next season will be used to top up barrels yet again. Um, after that, we, hey, we tried to be non-disruptive, like not going back through and retopping. Um, but that's something that we're still exploring. I mean, realistically, we're all, all brewers are trying to do better always. Um, so that may change over time. Um, thus far, my experience has been that aggressively retopping has promoted more uh, acetobacter, more uh, uh, unbalanced acid than uh, just topping once, twice, mm-hmm. etc. Gotcha. I have a couple final quick questions because sure. we're coming up coming up against it here. Mm-hmm. Give me your number one thing you learned from your previous locations that you like, you know, fixed. Damn, that's hard. Oh, so many um, things. Yeah, you know, we. I, I'm really glad that we weren't able to build the location that we have until the point that we did in that we've learned so much in the interim that surely we would have gotten it wrong in so many ways uh, right off the bat. Just from a workability standpoint, having hose reels, having, you know, CO2, having water, um, you know, having electrical stuff off of the ground means that you can move things around without, you know, somebody else is transferring beer and like, okay, now you're waiting to move a barrel from point A to point B because there's a hose in the way. I'm trying to keep that up off the ground. Like, you know, process piping was a massive improvement. Having stainless process piping above head uh, through both floors was fantastic. And having an adequate 
most of the time hot liquor supply, just hot water. Uh, so we now have a 36-barrel hot liquor tank as well as a 17-barrel hot liquor tank. And surprisingly enough, we usually run out. Uh, but we were constantly running into issues where, okay, we can either brew or wash and maintain oak barrels, keep them sanitary and clean, uh, but we can't do both. Um, even with both those hot liquor tanks now, we still occasionally run into issues with not having enough. But you never have enough 190 <laughs> Fahrenheit water. For sure. Yeah, I agree. So this will be interesting to see. I don't remember what the answer was the first time around. But I'm just going to ask the same question again, and the listeners can look back and see mm. what the differences are. What do you think, Trevor, is the biggest mistake in sour, <laughs> wild beer making? If somebody's making a beer, even if it might not be one that I love, relish, like just truly appreciate, if they're hitting their target, then that's not really a mistake, is it? I personally would love to see pursuit of greater drinkability, uh, depth of Britannomyces character, but that's just a personal taste thing, and there's no, not really any wrong. If, if if somebody wants to make any different expression of acidic beer, it's not wrong. Um, so it's hard to say a mistake. Um, fuck, I'd say, like, pour more out, probably. Mm-hmm. Um be more patient and take the time necessary and accept that some stuff isn't right and and don't sell it. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Something we should all listen to. Scott. Huh? What? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, finally, yeah. you guys are, you know, we're here in the Bay Area together. Mm-hmm. Are we going to see a Rare Barrel to Guard collaboration? I think we are. Yeah. We're going to talk about that on uh, Friday. Yeah. We're definitely going to try and make something happen there. We're, wow. uh, I think, tasting some barrels and maybe mm-hmm. maybe trying something out. Yeah. Beautiful. Taste some of our spontaneous beer. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> Mind blown. Yeah. Hopefully you think it's acceptable. We'll see. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks so much, Trevor, for being with us this evening. Appreciate you coming down and bringing all your great beers with you. These beers were wonderful. Thank you for sharing. Oh, uh, thank you both again. And- everybody involved in this it's been my sincere pleasure thank you scott for being here you're welcome my pleasure speaking of great humans beaver still here hey beaver thanks beaver still here thanks to sponsors thanks to listeners until next time stay sour What the F? Where did this What the fermentation?